Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and changemakers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. Serving others. That's how Jennifer Oyer, founder and chief joy officer of Community Impact Advisors, describes the foundation of her life and her work in Hawaii, across the Pacific Islands, and around the world. For the last two decades, she has led and grown development efforts at organizations across the islands, including the Salvation Army, the Arthritis Foundation, the Richardson School of Law at the University of Hawaii, and her own alma mater, Hawaii Baptist Academy, before launching her firm in 2019. Always leading by example and with generosity, Jennifer has been active on several nonprofit boards as well as in supporting the profession, including her current role on AFP's U.S. Foundation Philanthropy. We spoke to her at her office in Hawaii. I started my career in development when I graduated from college and I of course needed a job. So I called my old uh, boss. So I did work study in high school and um, I was in the HR department. So I called um, my old boss and I said, hey, I just graduated from college. Do you have anything available? And he said, well, actually I am gonna be starting, uh, I moved to the development department and I'm gonna be starting um, an alumni program. Is that something that you'd be interested in? And I said, absolutely, I would love to do that. One, it wasn't just a job, but I got to be back at my alma mater. So uh, I joined Hawaii Baptist Academy's development department, and I was doing alumni relations and annual giving. So that was kind of my first uh, taste of what fundraising is, and I loved it. And so from there, I just kind of, you know, got to learn a little bit more about philanthropy and um, went to the University of Hawaii and worked for the foundation there. And that's really where I kind of honed my skills in major gift fundraising. And so I did fundraising at the law school for about four or five years. And then I wanted to really then kind of take on more of a management um, and learn about leadership. So I went to the Arthritis Foundation, which was small organization here um, in Hawaii, but, you know, we had a small staff, which is great. And I got to learn and really, that's really where I learned about how to work with your boards and utilize volunteers. And so that was an awesome experience for me. And then I went to the Salvation Army where, um, you know, Salvation Army's big organization and um, learned I guess I, I would say, you know, that's kind of like the the huge breadth of really what a fundraising machine looks like. I mean, I had a large budget and, you know, I had uh, marketing and communications under me and emergency disaster services. So uh, I really got my hands in a lot of different areas, which taught me a lot about how to build this comprehensive fundraising structure. And um, yeah, so that's kind of my journey. That's it, it, it starts with your high school, which sounds like it was already a pretty pleasant experience. So uh, what about that school was, was special for you? How did you 
end up you know, electing to go there? And mm -hmm. what, what made it so unique for you? Yeah, Hawaii Baptist Academy is a really special school. And, um, you know, parents should send their children to wherever is the best fit. But, you know, HBA, it was a good fit for me. And um, it's a small private Christian school. And what's so unique about it is that it's a Southern Baptist school. And but the majority of the donors to the school are actually from Texas, Oklahoma, um, in the Bible Belt region. And mm -hmm they donate to the school because they consider it a ministry. And so that's when I, you know, being my first job, that kind of opened my eyes to what philanthropy truly was. I mean, there were these people who ha really have no connection um, being in Texas and Oklahoma and, you know, uh, Virginia, all of those areas they have really no connection except that they consider it a ministry and uh, to learn about why they're, they were so passionate about supporting scholarship and supporting children with the opportunity to get a, a private school education. To me, that just kind of blew me away. And um, I learned about people's generosity and it's really that's really where I learned about connecting the donor's passion to the needs of the organization. And uh, so HBA, it's like I said, it's a really special school. And um, I just learned a lot about fundraising and philanthropy there. Your parents, were they connected to the Southern Baptists or did they just see the school and think that was a great school? How did that happen? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, um, I think my cousin was going, my cousin was going to HBA, Hawaii Baptist Academy at the time. And uh, I think my parents just wanted to give me the best education that they could afford. And HBA is a top uh, private school here in Hawaii. And uh, it was close to where we lived. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's, that's how I got connected. But um, you know, that's really where also I became a Christian and where my parents um, became Christians, too. So um, it really had an impact impact on our entire family, for sure. The school itself on yes. making that faith journey. Mm -hmm. uh, that's pretty interesting because you often think about the experience for the student, but not necessarily it then having an impact on the parents in that way. What was that like for you and for them? I think it was a really, I mean, when I look back on it, it was such a meaningful um, time for my family, I think, because, um, you know, when you're in high school and you're a teenager, you're going through all of these different, you know, it's like a roller, being on a roller coaster, right? You have some great days and you have bad days. But I think that it allowed being in that kind of close knit environment. I had really close friends that I grew up with from elementary school all the way through high school. And so my parents got to, of course, be become friends with my friends' parents. And so it kind of built this close knit community that um, I believe was helpful for my parents. And so when, you know, we'd have 
sleepovers and get togethers with my girlfriends, the parents would get together and they'd kind of talk story and commiserate and talk about, you know, all of the problems that their teenagers are going through. So it just really built a sense of community that I think was helpful for my parents and allowed them to kind of get away also from their jobs because they had really stressful stressful jobs. So I think just having that sense of community was important. What kind of work were they doing that was so stressful? They uh, both worked for the federal government. They worked for the FBI. And uh, so, you know, I mean, I remember growing up at dinner time, a lot of times dinners would be very silent because my parents could never talk about their work and what they were, you know, the cases that they were working on. So, um, yeah, I would say their, their jobs were pretty stressful. Wow. So you could know they were in the FBI, but they could talk about that, what they were working on. (laughs) So often it's the teenagers keeping secrets, maybe unintentionally uh, from their parents, but this time it was the other way around. What was like that, that like for you as a kid? (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, learning about my parents working for the FBI, um, you know, I didn't think about it at the time. Like when I when I think about it now, I think, wow, um, working for the FBI, I think it takes a lot of I mean, there those that are in there and, you know, special agents, whatever. Um, they truly want to serve the community and they they really do care about the state of affairs here in the United States. And so when I look back on it now, I think, wow, those are some, they were doing really important work. And, you know, they were trying to ensure that, um, you know, like I remember my mom would go out at night on like a drug bust and um, she'd say, okay, your dad's going to be home with you, but, in, and I'm not going to be home when you wake up in the morning, uh, but just know that I'm going to be okay and I'm safe. And, you know, at the time you don't think about, you're like, okay, see you tomorrow. But now when I look back on it, I think, wow, they had some, they had a really exciting job. I'm sure at the time they didn't think it was that exciting, but, um, you know, they were doing good work and trying to keep our community safe. And I think, wow, that's really awesome. You know, they um, really took their jobs seriously and they really cared about um, making our state and our country better, uh, despite what people think about, about the FBI now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, before we even go there, there are so many things we can talk about, especially the servant piece of that, kind of the, serv- uh, the service element that's been such a big part of, of your life. Um, but it might be helpful for most of us who don't know Hawaii, like, like you've lived it to know where you're from. Exactly. Hawaii is Mm -hmm. made up of several islands, uh, many islands and, uh, and it's, it, it has its own character in each place. So where's your family from? Uh, thank you for asking because, uh, Hawaii is very unique and, I know, you know, when you're in fundraising, you tend to think, well, my organization is very unique and where I live is very unique. And so that makes us special. But Hawaii, I 
I mean, I'm biased, but Hawaii is a special place. And um, you're right. Every island is different. Every And even within the island, the pockets of community and uh, different nationalities and cultures are so varied. And so I grew up, well, I was born in Japan in Kumamoto and I was adopted and but raised here in Honolulu. And uh, I call myself a townie because I was, you know, um, pretty much lived my life in Honolulu. Um, but, you know, just from doing fundraising and being a consultant, how we do fundraising here in Honolulu is so different from how you do fundraising on Hawaii Island, which is mm. where, you know, people on the continent might be familiar with Hawaii Island because that's where the volcano just erupted and there was lava. And so that's a totally different community and how you do fundraising is different from the all the opposite end when on Kauai, which is uh, the northernmost island of the island chain and how you do fundraising there is totally different. So um, it's really about building relationships and getting to know the people and learn how, um, I guess, coming in with a sense of humility and learning, wanting to learn about their culture. I think that's the most important thing to remember here. It's it's also the most arguably the most diverse place in the United States, if not one of the most diverse in the world. Um, lots of different populations. I mean, you've even got that in your own family. So I, I don't know. Are your parents originally from Hawaii as well or where are they from? My mom is from Hawaii and uh, my dad is from Ohio. He's from East Liverpool, Ohio. And uh, he made his way to Hawaii because of his job working for the FBI. Uh, but, you know, I, yeah, I would say I, ha I had a pretty diverse uh, childhood because um, during the summers, you know, my dad would, they had what they called home leave for the FBI. So the special agents could fly back to their area where they're from and kind of take a vacation for, you know, two weeks or whatever. So um, every year my dad would take home leave. And instead of going back to Ohio, because who wants to hang out in Ohio for two weeks? <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> we'll have to edit that well, part and, out. No, we'll leave that in. We'll leave yeah. that. <laughs> um, we would, he would use that time and we would go and uh, just kind of travel the continent and uh, take advantage of being, on the continent or on the mainland, uh, which was really great for me because I wouldn't have oh, had the opportunity. Together as a family, you were traveling around. Oh, yeah, together as a family. And, you know, so I've got, I've had the opportunity to travel to all 50 states at least twice oh, wow. and, um, you know, learn about the different cultures. And um, some summers I would stay in Knoxville, Tennessee with my godparents and my parents would just kind of drop me off there for a month or two and uh, pick me back up at the end of summer. So it was really great just being in that kind of different environment and that culture and having that opportunity to learn about, you know, the different types of food and uh, hear the different accents 
So for a Hawaii girl, it was really it was really cool. I'm trying to imagine. Also, you have that again the diversity within your family. Do you have any sisters or brothers? I have a brother. He's seven years younger than me, and uh, he just started his entrepreneurial journey. He was a engineer for um, about ten years. He went to a really great school, engineering school, mm-hmm. and. Uh, he came back to Hawaii and he worked for a, a local company here. And I think like many other, um, you know, entrepreneurs, and I think for a lot of people after the pandemic too, he just kind of got a little antsy and he's like, I really want to do what I want to do, what I'm really passionate about. So he started a nonprofit. It's a basketball um, clinic. And um, so he's doing that and he loves it. And wow. in, in Hawaii also. In Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So your family's all kind of, again, uh, if your parents are living, um, you're mm-hmm. all in the same area still. Yes. Um, but, and I have the impression that you, now you said that you were originally adopted uh, from Japan. So have you been a bit back to Japan at some point? I mean, as, a, as an adult or as a youth or a, what, what has that experience been like? Yeah, well, I had the opportunity to, or my entire family, we had an opportunity to go back to my orphanage when I was a sophomore in high school. And uh, it really was to get health information, but um, my dad just wanted me to have the opportunity to see where I came from and um, make that connection for me, which I'm so grateful that um, he provided that for me. Uh, but I haven't been back since. And, uh, but I actually do, it's something that I do think about often, um, you know, whether it's culturally, you know, there's just little things, Japanese things that, um, that are kind of ingrained in us that we, you know, it's just a part of us. So I do actually think about my roots and where I came from quite often. You, well, you're surrounded where you live with um, Japanese culture, Chinese culture, Korean culture. I mean, every possible culture. Right. Um, and I'm sure that all of that's feeding into your sense about this kind of rich, you know, melange of, of different ways of viewing the world and experiences coming into it. Um, and that must influence also the way you think about working with others, um, kind of, you know, uh, obviously coming from a position of of interest and intrigue and um, how, how does that influence the work of uh, organizations in, in terms of fundraising? Are they being more uh, interested in and respectful of all these differences or do they try to kind of bring them all together? We've had a big conversation um, finally about diversity and trying to define it more inclusively in the last few years. Mm-hmm. But uh, Hawaii itself is is an example of all these people living together forever. And I'm curious to know if the organizations there have been um, more mindful of that, of, of each each uh, kind of slice of life that makes up um, the diversity of Hawaii. And if that influences how they engage with them, talk with them, invite them to participate. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. You know, I... Of course, I would like to say yes, but I feel like Hawaii has um, 
always been, and I don't know, maybe this sounds a little naive, but I feel like Hawaii has always been a little more inclusive and diverse when we when it comes to uh, fundraising practices, because that's just how we grew up. And um, it's just part of our uh, DNA almost, you know, um, when you go to a potluck or when you go to a party or uh, an office event, you'll see foods from all different types of culture, right? You see Filipino food, Chinese food, Japanese food. Uh, and because that's just who we are and um, it's a part of us. And so I feel like in some way, Hawaii has always been inclusive like that. Um, however, I do appreciate the fact that nonprofits are starting to think much more um, broadly when it comes to, you know, how they put their boards together, their um, board of directors, and how they um, think about building much more meaningful relationships with people. So it's not just about, okay, focusing on major gift donors or those that are the most uh, rich, right? I, I think that people are starting to think much more broadly about engaging donors, regardless of the amounts that um, they give, because I think that's key to building the solid um base for support. And I think more organizations are starting to realize that. This is something you've talked about before, about the importance of donors at all levels, uh, not just in terms of the, the revenue, but uh, really welcoming everybody in. And that must have been especially important in the last nearly three years. Maybe you can yes. talk a little bit about the pandemic, both from that standpoint, but also what it's meant for you. Uh, any kind of observations you've had or changes you've made as a result of living through this kind of collective strange experience? Mm -hmm. Well, first, this is, this is kind of off topic, but I do want to thank you, Jay, for just the um, amount of education and content that you've been providing for the nonprofit community over the past three years. Um, it's been amazing that the people that you've been able to uh, bring onto your podcast and into your webinars and, you know, all of that has just been so valuable and so rich for the nonprofit community. So thank you for that. And, you know, when I think about what's been happening over the past three years and when I work with my clients, I always go back to monthly giving donors and monthly giving programs and building that out because I truly believe that that's fundamental to building a healthy nonprofit program or fundraising program. And so that's one of the first things that I try and implement when I work with any client, if they don't have that, because I've seen that organizations that have monthly giving programs that has sustained them throughout the past two or three years, that's been resources that they've had um, built up over the years that have kept them afloat during the pandemic. And they were able to rely on that money 
when their special events went away. So I really believe that um, monthly giving programs and donor stewardship um, and building much more meaningful and intentional relationships is what is going to sustain organizations um, moving forward. We've had a, uh, a lot of conversation recently about what some people are terming a generosity crisis, but people have talked about the erosion of the donor population around the U.S. in general, sometimes around the world. And this idea about monthly giving, about engaging people and keeping them involved really meaningfully, not just with our handout, but but really engaging them as people is so important. And you, you've worked on this with AFP as as a whole as well, mm -hmm. correct? Yes, yes. Um, I really believe that um, keeping in mind, you know, developing these um, high value relationships with people that uh, are loyal and giving regularly to an organization is much more, is just as impactful as um, a donor that's giving six, seven figure gifts. And um, because, you know, we've seen many times donors that give um, regularly, monthly, are the ones that are the most invested in the organization and tend to also leave estate and gift plans to the organization because they're so connected and they've been giving for so long. And so I don't want organizations to only think about people that are giving six, seven figure gifts. I want them to start to think about people that are giving the five, $10 gifts every month and then moving them through the pipeline and encouraging them to uh, give larger gifts over the years and doing that by engaging with them regularly and building these meaningful relationships with them. Flipping that around, do you have any thoughts on why though we're seeing a general trend for fewer, a smaller and smaller percentage of the population giving? Is that something that is happening to Americans or is it something that we're doing wrong? Hmm. Um, I don't know. You know, I haven't actually, Hawaii might be, I would say, a year or two behind the trend. So really we haven't seen that here um, where, uh, you know, major gifts, I mean, fewer donors, um, larger gifts, but I don't know. I think it's, um, I think it's a, something that organizations just need to be much more cognizant of and aware of and think, uh, in a comprehensive way. So, you know, yes, major gifts will always be important to an organization and dealing with those high net worth donors will always be important. But um, I encourage nonprofits to, if they start, if they see that trend happening where, you know, less donors and larger gifts, think about, okay, acquisition is always going to be important, I think, to a to a nonprofit. Um, 
live ones will always be important and reconnecting with them. So how were you how will you make your organization much more uh comprehensive and robust and think a little more broadly about what you're going to be implementing into your program um, in your fund development plan every year to increase that base of supporters. Maybe part of that is a stewardship discussion too. And I know that you've, for those who have not met you, you do some of the most sincere and thoughtful work in thanking people um, and just reaching out to people of anybody I know in this field. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, and uh, I'm sure it's it's benefited your business, or at least I hope it has, but that doesn't seem to be where it comes from. It seems to be very much just who you are. Can you talk a little bit about what that's about for you and where that comes from and the importance you attach to that kind of stewardship or just displays of gratitude or engaging with other people in that way? Uh, well, thank you for that. I. I would say that, I don't know, I've always liked to give meaningful gifts. And, you know, whenever I'm shopping, I think, oh, I think this person would love, you know, this book, or I think this person would love that. So I'm always trying to think about um, others and what would make them happy or bring joy to them. But I think that that's why in some ways I've been really successful in fundraising because um, fundraising, I mean, it's about building relationships, right? And um, I, when you are working with donors, you need to remember what their dog's names are and you need to remember what their kids' names are and what they're interested in. And, um, you know, I just... That's really, I don't, we don't do it or you shouldn't be doing it because you see the dollar signs at the end. You do it because you really are trying to connect with someone and build a meaningful relationship with them. And one example that uh, happened recently is I was having lunch with a donor and he was, you know, saying that he always gets in trouble because he forgets his um, anniversary. And I said, okay, well, tell me now, what is the date of your anniversary? And I'm going to put it on my calendar. <laughs> so <laughs> sure enough, you know, um, the week before it was in my calendar and I ordered these, uh, a beautiful bouquet of paper roses. Um, and because, you know, this, the paper roses, I mean, they, it doesn't die, right. It's around forever. It looks beautiful. And so I ordered it for him and I dropped it off at his office and I said, I dropped it off the day before and I said, okay, your anniversary, just a reminder is tomorrow. So this is for you and give it to your wife and, you know, have a great time. <laughs> and that totally blew him away. And he was like, oh my gosh, no one has ever done that for me before. And he called me the day after and he's like, you saved me. Um, you know, so he was really grateful, but that just something super simple like that. I mean, it makes an impression, right? And um, it it's those little things, I think, that help to uh, build those relationships that you need to with with donors and also uh, constituents. 
um, some people have said that doing that kind of thing, like the handwritten note is either old fashioned or they say it's, you know, part of whatever culture or I mean, they're they're attributing it all these all these things to that to those little uh, gestures that you're mentioning. And you did just say that it can be beneficial to fundraising, but you're talking about something deeper. And that's I alluded to this before. And you have it actually in your LinkedIn profile when you write about yourself. You just say serving others. And what you just described was kind of a gesture of that. Sure, there's a practical implication. If this guy delivers those paper roses to his his wife, I'm sure that makes for a happier marriage. And it, <laughs> it makes it very definitely a happier relationship between you and that donor. But it's also just a really nice thing to do. But you had to you had to make an you have to make efforts to do those things. Why, what is the argument that you would make that there is a benefit to society as a whole, perhaps, for making these individual gestures mm. build relationships? Because some people would say, you know what, that's taking time away from helping people. But it seems like you've made an argument that's quite the reverse. Well, I always go back to Hank Rosso's quote. Fundraising is the gentle art of teaching the joy of giving. And that really resonates with me because um, philanthropy is about uh, joy, really. And I want people to be able to feel that and experience that. And uh, I want them to experience that so that they can learn and then also apply to an example that they may have or a situation that they may have. So I think about, you know, when we, when I work with boards or when I work with um, executive directors and executive directors are having a hard time connecting with their board of directors and getting them to engage and understand what the mission is. And they have a hard time encouraging the board to raise money. I always go back to, okay, what are some mission moments or donor or experiences that you can provide to your board members so that they can see and feel and touch and experience the same kind of passion that you have for the organization? Because um, everyone needs to have their own experience, right? So my hope is that when I do little things like that, it provides that experience or that little spark of joy um, that that person can then pass on. But where and, did you learn that? Because it must have been an example to you. This is something I often ask people about how they got their start. And they'll often talk about their professional arc. And you've shared that. Mm. You also shared about your school, which was very important to you and your family. You must have seen an example at some point of where doing things like this really is meaningful in a relationship between people. Do you mm -hmm. remember some of those early memories? Well, I would go back to my time at Hawaii Baptist Academy. And, you know, I spoke earlier about the donors, right, who are from Oklahoma and Texas and the Bible Belt area. Every year in February, those donors would fly to Hawaii on their own dime and spend a week visiting the school so that they could learn um, and see the kids, see the children that they were supporting, meet the teachers, and 
build deeper relationships with the school. And I feel like I learned that of serving others and wanting to help others through those donors that were flying on their own to visit a school in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and see the lives that were being touched through their philanthropy. And that's always left a huge impression on me. And um, it's something that I want others to experience as well, you know, and it's um, a big reason why I continue to encourage executive directors and nonprofit leaders about providing those special experiences, because I feel like HBA did it so well um, with that one week. We called it Mainland Mac Week, Mainland Advisory Council. And so that one week of these mainland constituents coming to Hawaii and spending time on campus with the students and with the teachers, that was so impactful for me um and left an impression and that's kind of how i learned about providing those experiences it also must have had uh, an impression on you about what a donor does and you're a donor as well right yes so how do you make those choices and and what is bringing you joy as a donor hmm Well, I, okay, so for my 41st birthday, I gave uh, a gift to 41 different organizations to see who were, you know, just organizations that, you know, um, were meaningful to me, but also it was a test to see who would respond. And out of those 41 organizations, I got only 16 acknowledgement letters back. And out of those 16, only three handwritten cards, thank you cards. And that was eye-opening for me, not only as a consultant, but as a donor as well. And so the organizations that I work with, I, you know, I get it. Nonprofit leaders are doing a lot. They wear multiple hats. They're very busy. But if they could take the time to simply send an acknowledgement letter or take it one step further, you know, my gifts weren't large, but those that wrote that took the time to write a handwritten thank you card, um, who do you think I'm giving money to now, you know, a few years later? It's those three organizations that took the time to write that handwritten card. And I'm giving much more than I did in that initial gift because over the years, they've taken the time to get to know me, um, learn about what my passion is about that particular organization. And I've gotten to learn a little bit more about what they do. And mm -hmm. so one organization that, you know, I, I used to see their special events happening in town. And I thought I used to think, man, um, their overhead must be like crazy. You know, their ROI on that special event is not probably not good. Um, so I never really gave to that organization. But when I got to learn a little bit more, 
that's where the test came in. I got to learn a little bit more about them. And um, actually, they invited me to And I got to see the impact that my money had on their organization. I thought, wow, this is amazing. So, um, you know, I think that organizations, if they can think about, again, providing those experiences, um, even to small level donors, you know, segment your groups and provide donor experiences to your different groups. I think they'll find it very worthwhile. Um. This idea about taking that extra care with donors, some people would say it's it's not just a matter of time, it's just volume, right? That if you have a thousand or ten thousand or a hundred thousand donors, how in the world could you write a you know a hundred thousand postscripts? Um, but I guess what you're describing is is a way to just if you think about them as individuals, that maybe that makes it a little bit uh, easier to swallow. That if they were, you know, family members, we would do that uh, if we if we could. Um, right. I, and I, I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I I think that that's really where um you know it, for nonprofit leaders that are having a hard time with time and don't feel like they have a lot, that's really where they can utilize their board members, right, to write those handwritten thank you cards or utilize their volunteers. Uh, one example during the pandemic, uh, I had a client where I encouraged them to utilize their volunteers to write, um, to do phone calls and thank you notes mm -hmm. during when the pandemic first hit. And um, it was so impactful for the board member, um, the board chair, who's, I would say, a little can be a little rough around the edges and um, a little grouchy at times. I, I gave him the assignment and I said, okay, this donor made a $250 gift last year. Can you take the time to call her and just um, let her know the status of the theater and uh, just thank her for her gift last year and um, wish her, you know, um, ask if she's doing okay. And so the board member did just that. He made the phone call. And a week later, that organization received a $1,000 gift from that donor. Um, because the board member took the time to just call and check in and say thank you. And um, so, you know, we're teaching the board member how to uh, build relationships and how to show care and um, show that we're not just thinking about the money, we're thinking about the person behind that. And that's really important to me and in building relationships. You know, as you talk about all this, I realized that one thing you talked about uh, with respect to the Salvation Army is that you weren't just on the fundraising side, you were really involved in the, in the mission um, that you, you know, getting the work done. And I remember talking to you around that time, I think when there was another major lava flow Mm -hmm. And th there were rocks of lava spewing out and hitting people's homes and, you know, injuring people and, uh, you know, destroying roads and all these things. And and you were flying all around, I think, checking on on people and mm -hmm. making sure things were going OK. I'm wondering if maybe sometimes these silos that we have in the world of of uh, the nonprofit space 
uh, impede our ability to see people as you saw them when you were worried about a, a, somebody who's the direct beneficiary of our work. Um, mm. he, uh, you, you were talking right now about working with board members individually, really working with them as individuals. I'm wondering, do we need to find ways to get closer to the action, whether that's closer to the people on the board, closer to our donors, closer to the to the mission, serving people at the food line, you know, um, making sure people can get from their house when it's on fire from some chunk of lava. What, what do we need to do to make sure that we have in our hearts the situation of our of our donors and our beneficiaries? Mm hmm. I would say that. I mean, I would encourage all nonprofit leaders to get out and um, have their own mission moment or what I call mission moments and personal story to tell. Uh, and because that is how you're going to get ambassadors, right? That's how you're going to get people to talk about your organization. And uh, to me, that has been the most uh, transforming um, element in helping to develop boards. When we can provide opportunities for board members, again, to have their own story to tell, they're going to be your biggest cheerleader for your organization. And I feel like nonprofit leaders and staff members too, the development staff need to have their own stories to tell. So go out and participate in, um, you know, if you work for a homeless shelter, participate in a day with your program people so that you can see exactly what the frontline people are doing so that you have your own story to tell. And, um, you know, I think about, what philanthropy really means and you know why we're doing this why we're working tirelessly for to serve the nonprofits that we um work for i mean philanthropy for me is about not only love for mankind but it also provides this kind of joy in healing and it helps us understand okay why do people want to why do people give? Well, people give for um, all kinds of healing reasons to um, honor a loved one or to, um, you know, maybe they're a recipient of the service that they they received. And so they want to give back or um, philanthropy allows a community to really heal, like how we saw with the lava disaster. So um, I really feel like um, if we can provide those opportunities for not only our staff members, but board members and donors, um, the impact of philanthropy will be so much greater for your organization. Does that, does that make sense? It it does. And and you use the word joy again, and that's right in your then title that you kind of <laughs> yeah. creatively invented for yourself at your firm. So uh, now you began the firm almost immediately before the, the, the pandemic. Yes. Uh, it was, it was so uh, three, three years plus ago, um, community impact advisors, you've been working on a lot of these issues with organizations. 
um, your work goes back with the entire community a long time, but uh, but particularly in the last several years. So I'm curious about a couple things. One is how you've kept your level of enthusiasm up and uh, to do this work with this passion and to do so at a time that was arguably one of the toughest that we've encountered uh, in the country's history, but particularly because if fundraising is about engaging with others, if philanthropy is about engaging with others, there were protracted periods of time when we felt we couldn't. We were in fear of one another because we might get sick mm -hmm. or we were just feeling like we had to honor whatever the local health codes were. But whatever it was, we couldn't just sit down and, you know, have a drink or play Monopoly together. So what kept the joy in your heart and uh, where are you as we hopefully gradually come out of this? Mm. Well, I, so my title is chief joy officer and I, that was very intentional. And I, I don't want to say that I made it up myself because it actually comes from a book from um, Richard Sheridan. And he talks about uh what a joyful leader looks like and a joyful leader um they are authentic they are loving humble visionary they're servant leaders but for me it was to just that reminder or that title that title is a reminder um to always we can always redefine who leaders are and um you know it's not so much a job title as it is a state of mind and um, a reminder to myself that I want to be a different kind of leader. And joy is about this profound change that um, we are trying to make in the world, in our community and in our world. So um, it was very intentional and it's just a constant reminder of um, how I think I should be in the community. Um, but so I say that to um, say that I wasn't always joyful, I guess, during the pandemic. I mean, it was a really difficult time to see a lot of my friends that are nonprofit leaders struggling, but it just made me um, just kind of confirmed and affirmed why I wanted to go off on my own and try and support as many organizations as possible. Because I truly believe that if we focus on the fundamentals of fundraising, we can build this healthy revenue. We can build healthy revenue streams, which helps to build sustainability for organizations for years to come. And that's really what my mission is. You know, I'm like so passionate about teaching the fundamentals of fundraising to our nonprofits, um, because I have seen how important it is and how um, how the organizations that I've worked with have thrived because of that. So I want to teach that to uh, nonprofits here. And um, yeah, so that's kind of my work in a nutshell and what I'm so passionate about. So what are you looking forward to next? You've been doing this for nearly four years. It's mm -hmm. kind of a different emerging world, a different landscape. What's what's next for you? I would say 
slow and steady wins the race. So I, you know, leadership is a journey, right? And um, what's next for me is just continuing to reach out to as many nonprofits as possible. And I think for me here in Hawaii, especially, we don't have a lot of opportunity, professional development opportunities. Um, and I'm so grateful that you were willing to come out here to Hawaii, but to have that kind of level of expertise here in Hawaii is, it's hard, you know, it's hard to get leaders like you out and professionals out. And um, so my, I feel like my role as a consultant through community impact advisors is to provide those opportunities to nonprofits so that they can see what else is out there and will, you know, see that there's national experts that are willing to share their knowledge with our nonprofits here. And, um, you know, I, I feel like we're all, we depend on help from others and, um, my, if, if I can kind of be that bridge, that's my role. And I also am really passionate about helping nonprofit leaders think about not just the tactics and, you know, the fundamentals of fundraising, but also remind them that they need to think about themselves and they need to be, uh, they need to take care of themselves before they can take care of others. So I'm really big on providing those opportunities like forest bathing to my clients so that um, they can experience, uh, you know, just a different way of being mindful and think about giving time for themselves and focusing on themselves. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at DonorSearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.